where the scripture was read, we joined together in singing the doxology, um, a song of thanksgiving, gratitude to God for the ways in which God has provided for us. And I just wanted to say thank you to this group so often, the way in which God chooses to work. Majority of the time, God chooses to work through God's people, through our efforts, through your hands and feet, through your words, through your encouragement, through affirmation. God's work gets done as God's people step into the place of obedience. And we've had a challenge here at the church. I went on sabbatical the last uh, fall, and when I came back, I felt like the number had gone on sabbatical with me, because financially we were in a difficult place. And um, at that time, at the end of October, we were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about $95,000 behind where we were needing to be at that time, which caused a great deal of concern. And some of that, just bits and pieces have been shared with you. Some of that has come about because of a dramatic shift in utility tariffs that have happened um, that have caused a significant increase in the cost of uh, electricity in a very unique way. It's tariff-oriented, not necessarily our usage over the course of a month. We do a great job of being very careful about how things are used around here. Since that time to now, that view of the deficit we were trying to address has dropped from about 95000 to about 45000 It's a huge drop from where we were. I just want to thank you for your contribution for making such a huge difference. We've got a ways to go, but I just wanted to bring you an update and say thanks for hearing the need and stepping into those places. Um, some of you as well, this connects just a little bit, some of you as well have asked about my father and how my father is doing. My dad has been moved from uh, one facility to another. I hope to get to see him soon. He's not doing very well. Um, and then, uh, uh, this morning, his uh, best friend over a lifetime is my uncle, Dudley Powers, who for a period of time served as a medical missionary, and he passed away this morning. And so my dad, in recovering from the uh, problems he's facing in the hospital, lost his best friend this morning. When I was with him um, the last time I was able to be there, um, my dad commented about his inability to get back to work at age 88. My dad still tries to put in 30 hours of work a week. And I didn't know this, but when my mom and dad became a little more homebound, um, unable to get out, they joined in our services. They had a designated time each week where they would go into the computer, pull up the podcasts of our service, and the two of them would listen to our service in the morning. And because of that, my dad decided to send off some of their charitable giving to our church. My dad was the one who taught me how to tithe, what it means to tithe, what it means to give uh, all of who you are. But part of their charitable giving came to our church. And when I was home the last day, he was bemoaning the fact that he had not been able to work during his time in the hospital and wanted me to know, like my dad, they live as some in our church do on what he's able to bring in with his hours of work and social security. They own their home, but they don't have much in savings or retirement accounts. And my dad 
emphasizes statements such as, blessed are those who believe though they have not seen. Because his audience is made up of people who did not see the events of Jesus. And he's speaking into their belief, telling them some of the very essential pieces of the faith. Now there are some skepticisms, not just skeptics, but there are concepts that have begun to become part of the faith culture when John writes. One of those notions is that it doesn't make any sense that the Messiah would be crucified. Why was that necessary for the Messiah to be crucified? Certainly the Messiah that we read about in the Old Testament was going to come and set up a kingdom. And John speaks throughout his gospel toward Jesus moving toward the cross and draws on the Old Testament to emphasize the essential nature of the crucifixion so that the kingdom of heaven might be created among us. He addresses it head on and over and over again gives little storylines and statements from Jesus to speak about the crucifixion. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus is not reluctant to move toward the cross. Jesus says very clearly, this is my hour. This is the hour for which I came. Jesus' movement toward the cross is not resistance and trying to stop the whole process. In fact, in this passage, we have already moved to the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And it shows such resolution on Jesus' part to go to Jerusalem so that the confrontation might take place. This is the hour. John also having written later than the others, was very aware of what the Roman Empire had created. And in wonderful literary ways, he keeps using the language of Jesus as the king. Sometimes he'll draw in ways by which the Roman Empire and those who represented the Roman Empire mocked him as he went through the trial before he was sent to the cross. The sign that was placed on top of the cross, the robe, the crown of thorns, all of those things done in a mocking way about being king of the Jews. But Chime uses it in such an ironic way because he becomes, through the resurrection, the king of kings. The kingdom has come. John sets this in contrast to Roman Empire, and every other cosmic force in the world, this one is our king. So John speaks to an audience and uses the stories and pieces of Jesus' journey to address the needs of the crowd that would be reading this gospel. I think one of the reasons it's incredibly appealing to people of today is because we're much like that crowd. We've not had the opportunity to be with any eyewitnesses. We didn't get to see it. We didn't get a chance to talk to anyone who saw Jesus or was there for the feeding of the 5,000 or 
came alongside during the trial or were part of the crowds when he yelled for Barabbas. We didn't really get to see any of that. We are among those who, though we have not seen, are wrestling with our belief. And John pronounces a blessing on us. Says that Jesus understands that. Provides the gospel that gives us this wonderful perspective of a storyline that is much bigger than just the Roman Empire. A storyline that's much bigger than just Bethlehem. A little small portion of Galilee. This is a story that encompasses all of creation. A story of which we get to be significant part at God's invitation. And so as this storyline begins in verse 20, the passage that we're looking at, it is in Jesus' last week. He's gone to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so many people are intrigued because of what happened with Lazarus. They're really interested in Jesus. They greet him as he enters Jerusalem with palms, and we'll talk more about that next week. But in this particular passage, as they are moving toward Jerusalem for the festival, there are some Greeks who have come as well. And there are some who would think that by Greeks they are referring to Gentiles, and that this is somehow the beginning of the opening of the good news to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. The language that's used, that's probably not the case. These are probably Jewish Gentiles. That's why they would be coming for the festival. They were part of the dispersion of the Jews, and they had taken up residence among the Greeks. And so they come back, and they heard about Jesus, and this was their opportunity on this pilgrimage to hear more about this personal news. It's traveled. A lot of chatter has taken place. And they find Philip. Philip is highlighted by John far more than Peter. Peter's highlighted in the other Gospels, not so in John. He highlights some of the other disciples, and Philip is one of them. They go to Philip, and they say, we like to talk to Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew and says, they're interested in seeing Jesus. So both Philip and Andrew make their way to Jesus and tell him about this request. It's really strange what John does here, because Jesus' response is almost disconnected from the request. We can't tell if the Greeks are part of the audience. We're really not even sure by the way the language is if Philip and Andrew are even part of the audience. John knows what John sometimes does. He tells enough of the story to set up what to him is really important. And that's what Jesus has to say about his death. It's almost as if the characters become props. It's not that they didn't say this, they did. But John simply uses them to set up the important part of the story. And that is Jesus' discussion of his own death. He begins to talk about a grain of wheat and that this seed will remain a single seed unless it goes into the ground and dies. And if it does that, then it will produce an enormous crop. He begins to unfold about the eminent death that he is about to face. And so we are confronted in these moments with the disciples of the crucifixion. 
question we know, but that's not part of the discussion right now in terms of Jesus' full revelation to them. He just speaks of his suffering and his death. There is an aspect of suffering in our Christian walk where we invite God into our suffering. Lord, please be with me. Please provide a healing touch. Please come into my life's journey. You know what I'm facing. I ask for your healing in the midst of my suffering, or I ask for your peace in the midst of my suffering. I ask for your wisdom, or guidance, or courage. It is this invitation to our Creator to enter into our suffering moment. And we believe in that. Absolutely. That's something that's a vital part of our faith tradition. There is also a piece of scripture where we are invited into Christ's suffering. This recognition of what Christ did on our behalf and somehow in our journey to reflect and to recognize that in the midst of a suffering world, we need to enter into what Christ bore on our behalf. Not that we in any way do what Christ did. He gave his life for the world. They don't like to say. But when we enter into, with Christ, suffering, we carry some of the suffering of one another in that process. It's an invitation to share one another's journey. When we're talking in Ephesians, there was this proposition that comes out in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. And in those areas where we are powerful, we act like Christ. In the areas where we are powerless, we conduct our lives as if unto Christ. Powerlessness isn't just in relationship to other people. Powerlessness is in relationship as well to the circumstances of life. There are things that happen to us where we feel powerless in the midst of those circumstances. And in those moments, the call is to live our lives in the midst of that as unto Christ. It's both an invitation that Christ would come into our suffering, but that we would also move into Christ's presence and realize what Christ has gone through. But then the most powerful piece is to enter into that journey with one another. That we might hold one another's burdens and cares. That we might walk the journey side by side. I think sometimes for us, we have misunderstood how we're to move into this place where we understand suffering in a new way. Sometimes it's not until we hit those difficult moments where we cry out to God and God invites us to do that in that moment. But I have to confess that when I'm in a deep body of water and I'm going down for the third time, 
it's not the best time to yell out for a life preserver. It would have been a lot smarter if I, while I was still in the boat, put on the life preserver, felt secure so that if I got into the water or fell in the water, I was in a place where I had already come to understand the safety that I have, the thing that holds me up. A few years ago, I had a chance to climb with some friends after several of you have done that this long hike, and then you get to the spot where it kind of goes down a little bit, and you embark on the last incline, which is pretty steep on pretty smooth rock to get up to the top of Half Dome. And there is this pathway that goes up with some kind of like guy wires that you can hold on to. And if you read up on it before you go, they say that you can, if you want to ahead of time, um, bring along a small little harness and a little attachment with a carabiner and lock into that wire as you go up. That was something that I wanted to do after I read that. It seemed like a great idea to me. I was probably one of, oh, I don't know, three people that did that, which is fine. There were dozens upon dozens and dozens of others who did that, didn't do that, and made it up and down just fine, though that is the location of many accidents that have been tragic over the years. But here's what I noticed. I did notice over and over again this sense in which not all, but many of my fellow travelers were overwhelmed with where each next step went, the angle that they were on, what they were holding on to, and very concerned about making their way step by step up this steep incline. I walked in with my little carabiner and the rope that I had attached. It was like a picnic for me. I am not fearless, but in that moment, I knew I was secure. I went up a little further, I reattached to the next section, I kept going up. When we came to a stop or when somebody up ahead had a little bit of a slip, there was no fear that I was going to get knocked off. I was connected. I was attached. It was, in the midst of that moment, easy for me to experience the beautiful vistas, the joy of the moment, the wind in my face, the beautiful sunshine, the people around me. And I have watched faithful Christians who have somehow not attached themselves to the source of life, to the place of belonging, it is as if Christ on the cross was something to glance at as I went on about the rest of my life, not something to gaze upon. This story out of Numbers, from which we get this language of Christ being lifted up, it says very clearly that God said, when you have been bitten and are in the midst of suffering, turn toward the pole. And you will not die. There is for us a call to gaze at Christ on the cross. It is for us redemption, renewal, restoration. It is the life preserver 
things that to me call for all kind of bumbling, bumbling, murmuring, complaining, crying out, and all that goes with that. Some of it incredibly justified. And these people, I am stunned because they walk through it with more joy than I sometimes I have on a good day. And I am convinced it is because they have fixed their eyes on the source of life. And when suffering then comes, they know to which they are attached, to whom they are attached. It changes their journey. We get satisfied with so much less than that. A faith journey that's just kind of a, an image of the real thing. And a privilege during my sabbatical to attend the Mass at Notre Dame. Oh my goodness, so beautiful. I sat in the back, way in the back. There were about four rows in front of me in this kind of aisle, and then like a hundred more rows in front of that. The place was huge. I couldn't see everything from where I was seated. I understood very little in terms of the language. The Mass was in a language I didn't understand, and I wrestled to try and pick up what point of service we were, what was being done, just to see if I could see the nuances of what was taking place. It was wonderful. It was worshipful. The understanding the words weren't what made it beautiful. It was just contemplating God in that moment. My worshipful moment was interrupted as a large group of tourists had come in the entrance. I don't know if they were completely unaware that a service was going on, but there was nothing that indicated they cared if they were aware. They walked to that little aisle right in front of me, and as they walked in, they were looking at their electronic devices, iPads, Galaxies, whatever it was they had. And as they stepped in front of the area where I was sitting, they immediately looked up and held their phones and their iPads and started clicking pictures of everything that was around. And as soon as they were done clicking pictures, they immediately looked down to make sure they'd gotten a good shot and turned to the left and started to walk out, literally out of the building. It was stunning to me. Here they had an opportunity to actually see the real thing, to spend a few moments reflecting and contemplating and being in the presence. All they wanted was just evidence that they had been there so that a year from now they could show friends. Yeah, I want to show you. It's right here. I got it. This was what they were satisfied with. It was amazing to me and then convicting to me. How many times... I'm satisfied with just evidence that I have been there, as opposed to being there. Satisfied with a, a glimpse of God's kingdom, instead of dwelling with my eyes fixed on God's kingdom. God is inviting us. He quotes Jesus' invitation. I must be lifted up. 
John says it's to indicate the type of death he had. But Jesus' words draw in the Old Testament story and what he had said early on in his ministry. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to me. The drawing of our attention, our focus, our gaze, so that whatever we face, our eyes are fixed on Christ. That's what allows us to move through the things that we face with a joy that makes no sense, with a peace that is really difficult to describe. It doesn't mean it's not heavy or difficult or even painful. We're invited into this place that is described by some as suffering. But it's so much more than that. It's an invitation to see the kingdom in a fresh new way. It's an invitation to join Jesus. If you moment something to invite those who might want to be prayed for this morning to come forward. The prayer is specific. I haven't done it in a while, and I am sorry for that. That's my oversight. But it's a prayer for healing. When we pray for healing, we're really not praying for a cure. Because we're all under the curse of death. It's appointed in the man and women who wants to die. So we're not praying for a cure. We're praying for healing. We believe in healing. God steps into our life and God sometimes chooses and does so far more than we realize by the way in which he has woven our body together. Brings about healing over and over and over again. Some of us are asking for a special kind of healing. Or a prayer on behalf of someone for whom we've been praying that same thing. full well that God can do as God chooses, but God invites us to make our petitions known to God. And so we do that this morning. Here's one of the beautiful pieces, though, being anointed for healing, is that when you turn around, you will see the rest of the body here. Because part of what we believe about healing is we're called to be healing agents for one another. So, Whether or not God chooses to heal specifically right now as the prayer takes place, and God may choose to do that, or if there is a delay in God's healing in your journey, the beautiful piece about this prayer is that we want to be on the journey with one another, whatever happens. And in that, we become healing agents for one another. We won't leave. We won't walk away. We won't pretend that it's not happening. We'll try and be there beside you, with you, whatever happens. Because that's how we're called into Christ for one another. So, I'm in a few moments going to stand right over here, my right, your left. I will, if you choose to come forward, anoint your head with oil. There's nothing magic about that moment. The oil in scriptural times was actually used as a healing agent. It was used to treat.
You're also welcome if you would like to do this. In your folder, the far right-hand corner is the connection card. If you'd like to fill out a prayer request, put it in one of these baskets or pray at the altar and fill out one of these little notepads with a prayer request and put it in the basket. Our prayers continue beyond this morning. We want to lift you up in prayer. I also know this. There are some here that I know and some I don't know who are prayer warriors in this church. God has called you to a ministry of prayer. I know that. I know you pray for me. I'm grateful. I'd love for you in this moment to pray. I might encourage you to keep your eyes open to see the individuals for whom you're praying. That's okay. If you see somebody come to the altar and they're alone and you think they might appreciate somebody praying with them, come forward and pray with them. That's great. It's going to take a few moments. There may be no one that comes forward to be anointed. That's okay. Don't be anxious about that. There may be 150 people that come forward. That's okay. Be patient. I'll play a little bit of music. I hope you'll pray. Pray for the people sitting beside you. If you want to bring somebody with you to pray, ask. We'll have a closing benediction and song at the end of this. But I'm calling our church.